Keely's going to be reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the sure one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have abundant power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Great job. Thank you, Keelan. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to be able to come together and to worship you today. Uh, and we do come today uh, on this Mother's Day, uh, as our country has set aside, um, to celebrate uh, the biblical and beautiful gift that you've given us to our mom, of our moms. And we thank you and rejoice uh, with the privilege it is uh, to know so many great moms and uh, to have our lives impacted in such a great way. Uh, by so many of our mothers. So we thank you and rejoice over them today. God, we thank you for the power uh, of your word. We thank you for the power uh, of your word being spoken by children uh, as they have read and they have sung and they have prayed. And so, God, I pray that uh, even as we continue in worship today, the same power who raised Christ from the dead uh, would be alive and working in our lives in such a way that we can't leave the same way we entered, but that we're transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's already been a good day of worship, hasn't it? That's good. Thank you to everybody that's participated. As we are continuing in the book of Revelation, we're doing the second and third chapter of this book, this series of seven letters that um, Jesus wrote and sent through uh, his, the Apostle John to these seven churches. And so we, if you're following along, you know that we skipped ahead uh, for Mother's Day to land uh, on this one. Uh, it's the church in Philadelphia. And uh, as we're going to see through here, there's a lot of language about open and closed. And so I thought probably many of you share the experience that I've had uh, of locking yourself out of something. You ever locked yourself out of your house or your car before? Uh, then you know, if you've done that, you know how frustrating and uh, just how miserable that can be, depending on uh, how bad it was. Thankfully, my, my worst fear, thankfully this has never happened, but for a long time I drove a car that only had one key. You know how you normally got two and it only had one key. So this was early when we had kids, and I just, my world's greatest fear was locking my kids and that one key 
in the car. And so I, I started this practice of I never, I still don't, even though I have another set of keys uh, now, I, I never shut the kids in the car without you know, one door open. If I'm going to shut one, I have to always open. I'm just so terrified uh, of, of locking my kids inside a, a car. I did lock myself out of a house one time, not a current house, but previous home. And I was the only one home. Nobody was there. I, I may have had my phone with me. I don't remember the details, but I, I remember going around and checking. That, that house had four doors. And of course, all four of them are locked. And I start going on and checking windows because it was a one-story house. So I, could, I had access to all these windows, and I kept checking and checking. Of course, all the big ones that are low and easy are all locked. But thankfully, there was one open window, but unfortunately, it was like a bathroom window, you know, that like starts at like this high. And so I go and find a chair and get on top of the deck. But then, you know, inside, it's also that high, so I can't go head first. I'm trying to get through feet. If you had a video of that, I mean, it would just be ridiculous of me trying not to rip down the shades, you know, the, the blinds inside there. It was just crazy. So needless to say, the next week I got another key and I put it out in the shed so that if I ever happened again, I wouldn't be locked out. We, we know how, you know, I mean, a key, I don't have my keys on, but you know how, I mean, just a simple little piece uh, of metal, the power that little key can have and how frustrating it can be when we can't get in somewhere that we know we're supposed to be able to get in. Um, many of us know the feeling of being locked out. And that also probably reminds us of the feeling of being left out. Maybe you've been a part of a group or somewhere, and at different times, uh, there's been an inside crowd, the crowd that's in, the crowd that you know, seems to know everybody and that kind of thing. And then there's the, the outsiders, the people who, who haven't made their way in. And if you've ever been in that group, a, feel, a group that feels like an outsider, you know how just frustrating and painful that can be to be somebody on the outside. Maybe you've uh, gone to, a, you know, you're, as a kid, you're picked, you know, for a schoolyard game of kickball or something, being picked last or toward the end. You know that, how frustrating that could be. The other side, we, we know the, the, the good. We know what it's like you know, to be picked first or be considered the VIP. To be on the inside can be so encouraging, and we just were so happy about that. One of the places that I get annoyed with, I don't even know if these still exist. It's been a while since so I've seen them, but in airports, you know how they have that business lounge? that seems to be for like important people. I don't even know how you get in that spot, if it's like a frequent flyer thing or a first class thing, but like multiple times I have walked past that thing and I feel like a second rate citizen. I don't even know what's on the other side, but I just can't go in. And so I don't, I don't know what's in there, but I feel uh, left out. Sometimes doors are good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they lock us out, sometimes they keep us in, but we know the difference of being on the inside and being on the outside. Um, for Mother's Day, we, we can think of many of the ways that our moms are, are the most likely people in the world to bring us in, aren't they? Like if nobody else in the world will give you a hug, your mom probably will give, give you a hug. They're the people that are most likely uh, to welcome us in. And even as Amber prayed, we know that for, today, for many that today uh, it's more bitter than sweet. And so whether your mom has passed away or uh, just a strained relationship, we know that's not, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And we know the brokenness of the world, and so we are, we are sympathetic to that and praying uh, toward reconciliation and redemption for those moments. But when we do have a, the, when we do have a, a blessed and good relationship with our mom, that, that can be the place better than anywhere else in the world, that we feel at home and we feel welcomed and we feel like we're inside the crowd. And those, our moms ha have kept the door open for us, so to speak, way more often than, than we deserve. <laughs> they have welcomed us in far more than we have earned. And so we're grateful for that. In our passage today in Revelation 3, 
Jesus is sending a letter to the church in Philadelphia. And no, that is not the Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Uh, that city had not been founded as of the year 90 AD. <laughs> but there was a Philadelphia in what's now uh, modern-day Turkey. And that's who he was writing to. All these churches, these seven letters are in that area. And most of these, most of these letters, if you've read through this, uh, Jesus compliments something they're doing well. And then he, he condemns them or calls them out on their sin. But there's two churches that Jesus doesn't mention sin. Both Philadelphia and one we saw two weeks ago, Smyrna, that they, they, uh, Jesus just compliments them. So they seem to be doing well. He didn't have anything uh, to call out in them. But to all of them, he challenges them. He challenges them <clears throat> to conquer. And this church in Philadelphia, uh, their pri- so their primary struggle, their challenge, was not the internal sin that many of the other churches had. Their primary challenge was external. It was the persecution they faced. It was the trials they were facing from people around them. Verse 8 says they were of little power. So that may be a reference to their size, that there's not very many of them, but it's at least a reference to the fact that they were persecuted. They were being shut out from many of the doors of society, and they were of little power to change that. So if we went back, just like two, two weeks ago with Smyrna, we said if we went back, this church in Smyrna would have looked poor. Here, this church looked weak. They, did, they were not the booming mega church uh, of, the, of the, the continent. They were not uh, live streaming to millions. They were not... Uh, reaching all corners of the earth. You would, you'd have gone back and you would have been unimpressed if you just from the outside looking in looked at the church at Philadelphia. And yet Jesus only has complimentary things to say about them. He has only encouraging words for them. He's not there to condemn. He's not there to, to say, how come you're not bigger? He says, I, I see your heart. And he has a lot of encouraging words for them. Maybe today, if you don't feel like you're on top of the world, you don't feel like you're, you're, you're changing the world, you're reaching the masses, you're, you're moving to heaven and earth, today you just feel a little bit like the Church of Philadelphia, just small and in your lane and doing your thing. I wonder if there can be a word of encouragement for us. The Church of Philadelphia, they knew the Lord, and that was enough. That was enough. And Jesus had only encouraging words for them. If you don't yet know Jesus, the invitation today is to know Him, because that's enough. More than moving heaven and earth, more than changing the world, more than doing anything else that you may have on your to-do list, or, or any other uh, unmet desires, or unmet requests, th- this, is, this is what you have. This is the, the thing, the door to open, is the door to knowing Jesus. The first encouragement to the church in Philadelphia and to us today is this, the world shuts you out, but Christ opens His door to you. The world shuts you out, but Christ opens His door to you. Being a Christian does not mean that every door will be open to you. In fact, many times as Christians, the doors are shut on us because we are Christians. Being a Christian makes it harder sometimes to do certain things. But to Christ, the most in Christ, the most important door has been opened to us. Jesus tells them in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. We've seen that phrase now in each of these churches, and he continues, I know Jesus for each of these churches and for all of us. He knows. He knows what you're going through. He knows your ups and your downs. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows our lives. And to all the Christians, he says, this is what I know about you. The door is open. Now, many times in the, in the Bible, the reference to a door being open is about the ministry going forward, about the advancement of the kingdom. We'll read about that in Acts and Paul's letters, how the, the gospel goes forward here. But the picture here seems to be a little bit different than that. It's a different kind of door, 
than just the kingdom of God advancing forward. Later on in, in verse 321, uh, chapter, Revelation 321, Jesus talks about knocking at the door and asking them to open it. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So I think the door that he's talking about here that is open before all Christians, that door is about our relationship with Christ. That we have an open door. We have access to God Himself. That God has opened the door so that we can know Him as He truly is. The door has been opened to have a relationship with Christ for all who believe. And nobody is able to shut that door. We have direct access to Christ. You don't have to go through anybody. You don't have to talk to anybody so that they can talk to Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you can talk to Him. Amen. And you, have a, you can have a relationship with Him. This open door is about your salvation, that you can know the risen Savior. This sounds similar to what Jesus told, uh, taught in John chapter 10. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is in charge of the door. He is in charge of who's out and who's in. He's, that, that's the door that matters most. Who's in with Jesus? Who has a relationship with Him? And to the believers in Philadelphia and to us today who believe in Him, He's saying, the door is open. The door is open. Just as in John 10, uh, we read about Jesus here in Revelation 3-7. He's the one in charge of that door. Uh, he said, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. We've seen in each of these letters that the way Jesus describes himself is important for the content of the letters. So this reference here is echoing back to Isaiah 22, 2, where it's talking about one of the, the priests, one of the leaders of the temple. And they said this, this one priest, he had the key of David. And apparently it was kind of a big thing because he said it's on his shoulder. So it's some kind of massive lever type thing. And this, the, the idea is that this guy, his job, his responsibility was to open and shut the doors of the temple. That nobody got in unless he let them in. And nobody could, if it was open, then everybody could get in, right? The door, he's in charge of open and closed. And in the Old Testament, the temple represented the presence of God. And so this guy was in charge of who gets in to see God and who doesn't. If you've ever tried to get in touch with somebody that's important and they've got a, you know, a receptionist and a calendar and you, you can't just walk barge into their office, you know, there's, there's a, a, a protocol and steps in place if you want to meet with them, right? That's how it was. There's a guy who's got a key. And if you don't go through the guy with the key, you can't get in there. And Jesus says, for the most important door ever, which is the door of your salvation, Jesus is the one who holds the key. He's the gatekeeper. He is the guy at the doorway. If he says it's closed, it's closed. And here to all believers, he says the door is open. The door is open. I'm sure we've all worried ourselves about different doors in life, different opportunities and things we wanted to open up. Maybe uh, some of our young people are thinking about college and trying to get into schools. Maybe you remember trying to apply for a job or in this transition, maybe you've had to, with everything going on, you've had to make a transition to a, a different job. You know what it's like to wait in anticipation to hear back or, or whatever else. And this, you're waiting for certain doors to open. Of all those doors, this door matters the most. And it's a door that's a, that represents our relationship with Christ. How, how do you get in that door? What, how, how is it opened? How do you get access to Jesus? Well, my, my good friend in, uh, in Massachusetts is a pastor, uh, my former pastor, 
Uh, he said this about these verses that I, I couldn't say any better, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, The key to the kingdom of God is in the shape of a cross. The key to the kingdom of God is in the shape of a cross. The way that door got open is that Jesus paid the price of his own life to open that door. We may be frustrated about different doors in life that haven't opened up to us, but this one is free. This one Jesus has already paid for. He laid down his life to pay for our sins. And with the cross, he unlocked that door and opened it for us. This was not a door like the ones at the grocery store that just if anybody walks in front of it, there's a motion detector and it just automatically opens for us. No, this is a much more highly secure door. It's one that would have required a, a, a thumbprint or a voice recognition or a retina scan or something because that door represents the fact because of our sin, we can't get to the holiness of God. It would be unsafe for us. And because of our sin, we, we don't deserve to be in God's presence. A debt had to be paid. And that debt was what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's how the door got open. And that's the only way for us to know Him. Again, back in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. That's how the gate is open. That's how the door, the door is opened. I think lots of people try, try to get to God on their own. They would look like me trying to break into my own house that time, banging on every door and every window, trying any back way to, to break into our own house, to try to get in. We're trying to get into God, right? People try that in all kinds of different ways. But there's no back bathroom window open that you can sneak into the kingdom of God. No, there's a big, wide open entryway. But you've got to go through Jesus. You can't avoid Jesus to get into the kingdom of God. No, all, the only path to God is the one that He came to us on. He came to us. We don't, we don't get ourselves to God. He came to us. And He came in His Son, Jesus. That's how the door is open. If you don't already, then, then know this. That's the only way the door is open. To believe in Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God. And for everyone who believes, that door is open. And what an encouragement that He says, the end of verse 8, He says, and no one is able to shut it. No one is able to shut it. There's not anybody that's going to come along in your life to prevent you from getting to Jesus. They don't have the power for that. Jesus is the one who has authority. Nobody can, can, can come up and surprise Jesus and close the door when He's not, when he's not looking. right? You have the unbelievable uh, assurance that no matter how many other doors have been shut in your face, by faith, this one is open. Jesus has opened the door. What a comfort what an encouragement. No one is able to shut you out if you believe in Him. The world may shut you out. The world may close off all kinds of things to you. But Christ has opened a door. And that's especially encouraging if you, like the church in Philadelphia, have faced a number of, of trials in your life. He says to them in verse 8, I know that you are of little power. Of little power. They, they haven't been able to open the doors in life on their own. In fact, probably what's going on here. Uh, we get this idea from, from verse 9. Jesus again mentions, to be the second time in these passages, this synagogue of Satan. So he's talking about people who, who uh, may be ethnically Jewish or pretending, uh, thinking, acting like they're Jewish, acting like they're following the one true God, the God of the Scriptures, and yet they don't know God. And so they're not really the Jewish people, not really God's people. And so uh, on they've, what they've probably done, the synagogue in the, church of Phil in the city of Philadelphia has kicked these Christians out and said, you can't worship here. 
Well, in the Roman Empire, the, the Jews were some of the only people who were allowed to, to worship their own God. Everybody else had to worship the, the, the cults and th different things for the Roman religion. And so the Christians weren't Romans, and they were kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, so they were in no man's land. The door had been shut on them. They had nowhere to go. And so they are of little power, and they are persecuted. They're perse persecuted by the Jews on this side, and they're persecuted by the Romans on the other side. The Christians were in no man land, out in, out in the cold, outcast. And so Jesus is commending them and complimenting them because even though they're of little power, they're continuing to persevere. And that, let that be a, a challenge to us today. To the world, you may seem powerless, but in Christ, you can persevere. In Christ, persevere. The world may look at you, look at the church, look at, uh, especially as you know, the, the world's becoming more and more secular, and then say, hey, the church is just this little powerless little thing over here. We don't have to worry about it. They may think we're just weak and clueless, uh, and, and that's fine if they think that. But we know that there's something far greater going on here. We know the creator of the universe and the savior of the world. There is no greater power than that. And so we're called to persevere in him. I know that you have but little power, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The Christians would not say Caesar is Lord. They would hold fast that Christ is the only Lord. They're willing to be known as Christians even if it costs them something. They're willing to stand their ground. Again in verse 10, and said, you have kept my word about patient endurance. We've already seen this word. This is a theme that keeps coming in all these letters. Through all the trials and ups and downs in life, this is the call. Perseverance, endurance, being steadfast, holding firm to the Lord. And as I read that uh, again and again this week, I just felt this clear reminder from the Lord. Yes, that if you're going through trials, if you've got major struggles, major obstacles going on in the Lord, that there are in, in your life, that in the Lord you can persevere through the big things, the major things in life. But I think there's also a call here. This idea of patient endurance is, is for the long haul. We've said multiple times that the endurance marathon, right? That, that we're called to, to stay faithful to the Lord through everything. And that means through the everyday stuff. It's, idea, it's one thing to think about the endurance through the storms, endurance through the tragedies, endurance through the hardships. But what about Monday morning, your commute? <laughs> Are you faithful to the Lord tomorrow as you're driving to work? Do you have a faithful endurance, persevering in Christ, continuing in your relationship with the Lord through your Tuesday afternoon staff meeting this week? Are you following the Lord? Are you faithful to Christ as you go to the ball field Thursday night with your kids? This Saturday when you get together with a group of friends and you're doing something fun, are you following the Lord there? Are you faithful wherever God has put you now? Are you continuing to endure in those things, the everyday things? I felt that call from the Lord today just in my own, my own life, just in the regular rhythm of ministry and life for me. Am I faithful as a dad? Am I faithful as a husband? Am I faithful as a son, as a brother, as a pastor? just in the regular routines of life? Are we patiently enduring? Are we faithful to God in those things? I said that to a group of guys on Thursday morning, and apparently God felt like I needed to, to keep hearing that because two different times, Thursday and Friday, I heard this. I listened to a, a podcast uh, from Crossway on the, from Ruth Chow Simmons, who's now uh, an artist who has this incredible ministry and, and, and does all these different things through her art and devotionals and different stuff. 
but they interviewed her about her time, about, you know, kind of the progress of her life. And she said for, for over a decade, she was raising children. It was just raising children. She has six kids, you know. And so nobody really outside of her immediate family was hearing her, her, her wisdom or her, her, her Bible study. She was doing paint and stuff for, for her family. But for over a decade, no, she was just ministering to her family. And she said, God just had me in that season to be faithful right where I was. Now she has an international ministry. But for a long time, her role was in the home, and that's it. I listened to a, another guy, Kevin DeYoung. God give me that, another reminder. He's a pastor in, in Charlotte and has a, a great ministry there. And he said, you know, a lot of people come, you know, whether it be through ministry or through whatever else, and they say, I, I, I'm going to change the world, you know. Like, I got this passion and this burning desire. I'm going to change the world. And that same person, you know what their job is that day? Because this, this hit home with me. Their job that day is to change a diaper. I'm so focused on changing the world, but today my job is to change a diaper. Are you faithful right where you are? Right where you are. You're patiently enduring just the everyday stuff. Yes, the challenges are going to come. Yes, the big obstacles are going to come. And there's going to be major times where you're going to have to cry out, begging God for Him to intervene. But you also got to go to work tomorrow. And probably the day after that and the day after that. Are you enduring, patiently enduring, and being faithful in those places day in and day out. These guys in Philadelphia, uh, we don't get a full picture of what their persecution looked like. Others uh, describe more strongly, so maybe theirs wasn't as strong. But for whatever season, they had a, a long haul here of enduring patiently with the Lord. Uh, one pastor, Fred Credick, uh, made a really good comparison. He said, you know, to give my life to Christ appears glorious. I'll pour myself out for others to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord. I'll go out in a blaze of glory. He said, we think that uh, giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and lay it on the table and saying, I'm giving it to you, God. I'm just giving it all to you, you know. He said, but sometimes it's a little more like this. The bank takes that $1,000 and they cash it all out in quarters and give it back to you. And you don't get to just lay it all down at once. He says, you go around through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Usually our giving of our, of our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's not, done, it's not done in a big act. It's done in all those little acts of love or endurance or faithfulness, 25 cents at a time. It'd be easier for it to be a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life a little by little over the long haul. That's a picture of faithful endurance, giving your life away. 25 cents at a time, day in and day out, being faithful with where God has put you. Jesus gave the church at Philadelphia this encouragement to stay strong, to endure, to be patient, to persevere, because you've got the power of God in you. You're not powerless like the world thinks we are. We have God's power. And He reminds them, He encourages them about where they've come from and where they're going. They have the open door. They have a relationship with Christ. But he starts pointing ahead to the future. He tells them justice is coming. He told this group who's being persecuted now that one day, he says, verse 9, about the, their oppressors, says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. There's another uh, reference to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has so many things that are quoted in the New Testament. This is in 45, Isaiah 45, 14, where it describes people from all different nations coming and bowing down to the people in Jerusalem. And they're not worshiping them. What it says is they, the, those people are saying, Surely God is in you, and there's no other, no God beside Him. 
all the enemies one day will bow down and say, the Christians were right. Christ is king and there is no other. They'll learn, uh, verse 10 says that Jesus truly loves his people, loves his children. He says, and they will learn that I have loved you. What, what an encouragement. That even if the world hates you, <laughs> Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And because of that, we can endure. We can be patient. We can be steadfast. Verse 10 says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. Now, I don't want to go too far down a, a path here, but many people read this verse and think about the end times, think about being saved uh, from a, a time of tribulation. And, and many people interpret that way, and that, that could be what he's describing here. But for me, when I think back, this was written 2,000 years ago, so the people who got this letter, they long since died, right? So I'm not sure how much of an encouragement it would be to the church in Philadelphia to know that 2,000 years later, you know what I'm saying? Like if it's just about the end times, that hadn't happened as of that point. So what was he trying to say to the church in Philadelphia? Well, there's one of two things. He could have been saying there was a really intense time of persecution that was about to come, that he was going to save them. But I think what's probably going on here is that he's referring to the eternal judgment we all face when we die. If he wanted to encourage them to persevere, then, then listen to the way he, he says it. He's telling them that I'm going to preserve you from this hour of trial. There's a judgment coming for all the world. And for those who believe in him, we will not have to go through that. We will be saved because the door is open. We are with him. That's an encouragement to them and it's an encouragement to us to stay strong, to persevere, to endure with Christ don't get lackadaisical. He says, I'm coming soon. And there's a sense of urgency to that, that we're always ready for Christ to return, that we always want to be ready for what Christ has for us. So he tells them in verse 11, hold fast to what you have so that no one can seize your crown. Your crown is your relationship with Christ. The, the, the crowning reward, the eternal reward is being with him forever. So hold fast to him. For all who believe you're saved, the door is open. You're in already. So the call now is to persevere, to stay with Christ, to stay on course, to keep following Him. And he motivates that by what's to come, what's in the future. And he paints this glorious picture of our, of our life with Christ for eternity. As Christians, it may feel like we're locked out at times, outcasts, we're shut out from the world. But in the end, that won't be the case. Let this be an encouragement to you you're excluded from the world, but you're welcomed into Christ's presence forever, for eternity. You may be excluded. The world may shut you out, but you are welcomed into Christ's presence if you believe in Him, and you're welcomed there forever, for all of eternity. The Christians have been kicked out of the synagogues. They're rejected by the Romans, but God's temple, His eternal temple, had a place for them. He says they will be pillars the pillars were, were the, the strong, permanent structure in the temple. And you, you may can picture, you know, in ancient Greece, different, or different things that are up right now, the, the ruins of ancient Greece. What part is still standing of these ancient things? The pillars in the middle, right? And the church at Philadelphia, we know from, from history that at this time they had been through multiple earthquakes. So these people probably had seen buildings fall. And you know what still stands? It's the pillar. And so he's saying, you're, you're coming into God's presence and you're like a pillar. You're a permanent structure in the household of God. Nobody can take you out. Nobody can knock you down. You are with God forever. This is a promise to all who 
conquered. A few weeks ago, we looked at words, the word Nike, the word to conquer, to overcome. If you stay, if you endure, then you are a permanent fixture in the household of God. You're a permanent uh, a pillar in the temple of God. What, what a beautiful, beautiful description. The psalmist so many times talked about longing to be in God's presence in his temple. David in Psalm 27, 4, he said, One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty, to the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 84, 10 says, For one day in the house, in the courts of the Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of of wickedness. To be a Christian is to have the assurance, the confidence, the hope in Christ that forever we will be in His presence. And he says to that group, to those of us who persevere, who conquer, we will have the name of my God. Listen to this. He says, uh, my, four times. He says, I will write on Him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He's saying he's going to put a new name on you in the city, and it belongs. we belong to God. We are His. We are in His presence. And He says, you are mine. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And you'll be with me forever. We are promised a place in His temple, in this new city, for all of eternity. For everybody who conquers, everybody who perseveres by faith. We get to be with God forever. The theme of God's presence is one you could track from beginning to end in the Bible. God, you could, you could really summarize the entire Bible as saying that we as, as humans are being, or we were created in God's image, and then God has done whatever was necessary so that we could be with Him. You could track the entire story of the Bible that way. The, the garden, the Garden of Eden, was about a place where God could, could make us, He made us, and then He walked with us in the cool of the day. You can picture the way that God's people in Egypt and the reason He did all the, the wonders and the miracles and everything He did in Egypt was to bring His people out of Egypt so they could be with Him. They worshipped Him in the desert, but because of their sin, God set up this incredible tabernacle where they could, through all these rites and privileges, God could dwell in a tent in the middle of the encampment of His people. He could be with His people. He brought them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, so that He could be with His people. They constructed a, a permanent temple, a more glorious form of the tabernacle, so that in around the city, God's people could live there, and God could live right in the middle of their city. Because of their sin, that temple is destroyed. And uh, decades later, God's people come back and they rebuild that temple. And yet God's presence wasn't fully there. And so you know what God did? He came as a man. The incarnation, Christ, is about the, the whole reason He came is that He could be God with us. His presence here with His people. And when Christ died, you know what happened? The curtain was ripped in two. It was torn from top to bottom because God's presence was no longer contained in that temple. He was coming out to us. And that was fulfilled just a, couple, uh, just a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon all the believers so that God was not just physically around them, but now dwelling inside us as His Spirit. And eternity is about how we will be in the new city, the new Jerusalem, living and dwelling with God. There won't be a sun there. Because God Himself will be light and shining for all to see. 
from beginning to end, the story of God is about God dwelling with His people. And if you know that, if you know that's where we're going, if you know the door is open for all who believe, then you can endure the hardships and the Monday mornings in this life knowing He's with us and we get to be with Him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for today and for the power Your Word has to transform us. Lord, we confess that we feel powerless like the church in Philadelphia, and yet so many times we let that defeat us, and we don't endure. We get sidetracked. We get caught up in our own sin, our own temptations, our own lies. And so, God, we pray for forgiveness, and we pray, God, that You would heal us and restore us to Your presence. God, we know that the door to You has only been opened because of what Christ has done. So we come today celebrating and thanking You for that incredible gift. God, we pray that today as we consider what it means for you to be with us, that you have welcomed us in. God, that that truth, the glory of your presence with us for now and for eternity, that that truth would motivate us to walk with you, to endure life's challenges, knowing you are with us. God, if there are any who do not yet know you, that the door hasn't been opened and they haven't found the open door yet, God, we pray that today they would turn away from their sins and they would trust in you. They would trust that you died for their sins. And that you've made a way for them to have a relationship with the God of the universe. God, bring them through that door. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.